0: Hello. Uh, I should say that uh, very few of the ideas that I'm going to articulate are my own. Most of what I know about fine-tuning I've learned from my co-author on a a work that this is loosely related to, uh, Yoav Isaacs, who's who's, uh, at Princeton, but I've also uh, learned a lot talking to Richard and Jeff and Julian and many others. I'm going to make it sort of bright and breezy, and I'm also going to try and weave in some faintly opinionated remarks about a few of the other talks, just to add to the fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to assume that you know the gist of fine-tuning arguments. Uh, They've been around in some form or other for quite some time, as... uh, Richard reminded me uh, in the 4th century Athanasius of Alexandria reasoned that you know thinking about the natural propensities of earth, air, fire and water would lead us to expect a certain kind of structure where you've got just a whole pile of earth at the beginning and then uh, spheres as it were going out with fire on the outside but that the kinds of mixtures that we find in reality speak to the hypothesis that uh, Reality has been tinkered with by a divine artificer. And in the ninth century, uh, in his book of the Orthodox Faith, uh, John of Damascus uh, gave a whole bunch of considerations along the lines that, well, when you look at the kind of orderliness that we find in creation, that speaks against the hypothesis that... uh, the cause of creation is the spontaneous, as he put it. Uh, not, not in English, but... <laughs> <laughs> and in uh, 1692, um, Richard Bentley, uh, the great Cambridge theologian, was writing the Boyle uh, Lectures on Atheism and enlisted uh, Isaac Newton for some help, saying, you know, help me with, come up with some arguments, and... Uh, Newton came up with a variety of arguments uh, that he thought spoke in favor of uh, theism, and one of them was along these lines. When you consider the delicate balancing act needed in matter, positions, and velocities to get the, uh, something like a planetary system, uh, that speaks against the hypothesis that, as he put it, the cause is blind and fortuitous but instead in favor of the hypothesis that the cause is very well skilled in geometry and mechanics. And he was thereby led to conclude that the uh, cause of all things, he was forced, as he put it, to ascribe the, the, uh, uh, um, the cause of all things as, um, uh, as involving the counsel and contrivance of a voluntary agent. Well, of course, fine-tuning arguments, I mean, there's the the seeds of fine-tuning arguments in all that work. Fine-tuning arguments have exploded in recent times. Part of that, I mean, it's good to realize some of these arguments wouldn't have been possible in their current form, even abstracting away from the physics in earlier epochs, because it was only after the work of the people at Port Royal and others, that the kind of probabilistic reasoning that you find in modern times was even possible. I think, arguably, probabilistic reasoning as we know it just wasn't available before Port Royal, or as many historians have told me. But of course, also, the physics has evolved in a way that it's become possible to lay out uh, fine tuning arguments with a remarkable degree of at least apparent uh, sophistication, and rigor and detail. Uh, A detail that was well beyond uh, 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 what was available in in earlier epochs. Let me give you a feel for one of them. Uh, And again, you know, I'm I'm not a physicist, so I'm just uh, relying on testimony, but just a feel for one of them. There's this thing, the cosmological constant, that represents the... uh, Uh, energy density in the vacuum and in the standard model or whatever, uh, this constant is the result of adding and taking away some absolutely enormous numbers whose absolute value is like 10 to the 120. And if you do the combinatorics, you will have an overwhelming expectation that uh, that that level will be either staggeringly high or staggeringly low but what instead you find is that it's tiny which is an enormous as it were epistemic surprise moreover it turns out that if the number was staggeringly high then um, uh, after the Big Bang everything would have expanded far too rapidly for there to be meaningful interaction between particles and if it had been staggeringly low uh, then um, uh, everything would have quickly uh, collapsed back with a big crunch so quickly indeed that it would not have been possible for there to be uh, uh, meaningful stuff going on in between. So that's the shape. and You, you, can, you can fill in the argument you know, with a, with a bit of physics like that. Um, and I'll return to that argument and, and do a bit of window dressing in a bit. I want to make three preliminary points I mean maybe a little tendentious but, uh, about fine-tuning arguments and at least uh, things to think about maybe four things the first thing I think is a good way of framing the thing is thinking you know what additional evidential boost do you get by learning about fine-tuning you know by most people's standards, learning that there's life, you go, wow, there's life, uh, is evidence, how good evidence we can decide, is evidence of a creator with, with, that's really into life. I mean, on any reasonable neo Bayesian model, the existence of life is evidence for a creator that was, had a life fetish, just as the existence of cheese is some evidence for the hypothesis of a creator with a cheese fetish okay so the question isn't is life evidence for um uh a creator that that was into life the answer to that is completely straightforward what we what i'd like you to focus on is how much additional if any evidential bump do you get when you discover that the laws are the law the laws are stringent with respect to life you know only uh, uh, a small range of a certain constant and so on is, is life permitting so I think that's what you should be focusing on how much of an additional evidential bump does that sort of information give you okay second thing um, I'd like to get at is that um, I think we should all agree that if things had turned out a certain way, certain ways, fine-tuning arguments would have been awesome. Uh, if we'd have looked into the hydrogen atom and found in its deep structure the gospel according to John, written in Greek, and <laughs> looked into the helium atom and, you know, found the gospel according to Luke, written in Greek, We wouldn't, you know, have many philosophers say, well, you know, the priors are very difficult and this, you know, (laughs) know, and this, well, doesn't objective chance screen off all of that? That just wouldn't be happening. If we found that, I don't really care how the details go. We'd be, you know, we'd have a big evidential bump and I take that to be a fixed point. That's not to say that what we've found is anything like that. But I'm very nervous, and I think Roger and John were maybe getting at this, of arguments to the effect that as a matter of principle, uh, you know, fine-tuning arguments aren't any good. There's got to be something wrong with that from my point of view. Another bit of scene setting um, is I'm not so sure. I mean, this is something I'm still thinking about, but... I'm far from sure that it matters very much to fine-tuning arguments that you make hypotheses about what's metaphysically possible or or necessary, that you make delicate judgment calls about that. I mean, just to sort of dramatize this, suppose somehow we knew that the world was spinazistic, that there's only one metaphysically possible world. Still, we'd, as usual, have... uh, An array of epistemic probabilities I mean even as things are now you know I I can have mixed epistemic probabilities about whether uh, uh, Janet is identical to Mary despite the fact that I know that uh, owing to the necessity of identity if they are identical it's metaphysically necessary that they are and if they're uh, numerically diverse it's metaphysically necessary that they are so that doesn't stop me uh, having a spread of epistemic likelihoods as it were and similarly it's by no means clear why uh, the, even conditional on the information of spinocism, we can't run these arguments I mean if I knew spinocism and I found that that stuff written in the helium atom it would still provide dramatic confirmation so I think that's at least something to think about how much these things actually require Uh, taking a stand on whether the laws of nature are metaphysically necessary or not, given that the fundamental architecture seems to be to do with epistemic possibility, not metaphysical possibility. But, you know, that's something I'd like to... I wanted to flag as an issue and think about it some more. Um, One other thing, just as a bit of scene setting, These arguments are often run using the phenomenon of fragility, but I'm very nervous about running them that way. I mean, my thoughts have evolved a bit since I last gave a talk on this, when I'd hardly thought about this stuff at all, but one thing I still think is, running the thing off fragility is not so clearly the right thing to be running it off. Fragility is the phenomenon, say, with a constant, where you find the constant's a certain way and small wiggles from that constant. Uh, would take you to a non-life world. I mean, there's normalisation issues. We're talking about small and big there, but I'm going to leave that to one side. I mean, fragility, for example, is uh, compatible with, you know, we're there and the whole swathes of uh, a, a, a range of constant space are life-permitting. So fragility is a different phenomenon to the phenomenon of stringency. Because, as it were, conditional on you knowing you were the constant was in that range life wouldn't be at all surprising even though if we're there there's fragility in place so i think uh, stringency and fragility are different phenomena i think there might be some correlation but i think it's better to run the thing directly off stringency rather than fragility but in fact if you look at much of the literature It's indulging itself in the phenomena of fragility instead, and I think that's not such a great idea. Okay. Sorry, my mouth's dry. Mild hangover and all. Okay. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with an analogy that Jonathan Weisberg has presented that's intended to uh, convince us that uh, fine tuning does not give you an evidential bump uh, beyond the fact of life itself. And life is a placeholder. We can do discovery, consciousness, knowledge. You know, you pick your favorite thing or whatever. It's a bit of a placeholder. And I'm going to show that it's just not a good argument. If that's a good analogy, then it's awesome news for uh, the lovers of fine-tuning. So, in fact, what the fine-tuning people need to be doing, parche, what Jonathan says, is to find some disanalogy between his, 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 the case he describes and uh, the epistemic situation we find ourselves in. And then I'm going to go through a bunch of reasons um, why you might think there's a disanalogy and say some things about them. Okay. First, here's an analogy. Uh, Suppose there's two cell blocks. Um, Cell block A and cell block B. Cell block A has 99 innocent innocent but jailed people and one uh, criminal. And... Uh, Cell block B has 99 um, uh, criminals and one innocent person. Okay. Here are some facts, it seems to me. Uh, First fact, if you were to learn that an innocent person was going to be released. Oh, sorry, I need another aspect of the setup I completely forgot. There are two people that might be in charge of uh, releasing a particular prisoner. You know one's going, You know, a prisoner is gonna be released today, and you know one of two people might be in charge, okay? Let's suppose you're 50-50 who's in charge, just to make things easy. Uh, one of the people that may be in charge is Mr. Random, and you know that Mr. Random is just gonna pick the release by picking a prisoner at random. The other person who might be in charge is Miss Justice, and you know that Miss Justice, here's what you know, that Miss Justice will choose to release an innocent prisoner, for sure. But you don't know for sure what method beyond that, okay? Here are some, seem to be some facts. Uh, First fact, uh, if you learn that an innocent person is gonna be released, Obviously, that's evidence that uh, Miss Justice was in charge. That's analogous to life giving God a boost. Okay. Um, second fact, if you didn't learn that you, an innocent person was going to be released, but you learned that someone from cell block B uh, was going to be released, that seems to be uh, evidence that um, Mr. Random was in charge. I mean, here's one way of, you think, well, it wouldn't be, it would be very unsurprising if, um, it wouldn't be that surprising if Miss Justice was in charge. Her her method was uh, just to pick an innocent person at random, and conditional on her using that method, it would be very, it would be very surprising for the prisoner to be released. from, from cell block B. So we know those, those are two plausible individual bits but now here's a question. Suppose we learn sequentially, I don't really care about the order A, that fir- first point that, that an innocent person going to be released and then it's from cell block B. That's the analogue of the fine tuning discovery, the cell block B discovery. What does that, what does the second bit of information do? When you get the two together. Is the two together give an extra bump to uh to Miss Innocent beyond just the information that an innocent person is going to be released or not? Weisberg says it doesn't provide an extra bump. And what he does is he 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 reason he, he talks more or less along the following lines. There's no reason to think that Miss Innocent wouldn't use uh, a random method, i.e. random within the, uh, the innocent group. There's no reason to think that she wouldn't use that method of just taking the innocents and picking at random. But that's not a good argument. The, it's very, very... If, if you're doing Bayesian reasoning, be very, very careful when you start intermingling in that with... It. Ideology like no reason to think. I mean, suppose I agree. I've got no special reason to think that she wouldn't use a, a, a random method. Let's suppose I'm 80% conditional on Miss Innocent is not in charge. Miss Justice is in charge. I'm 80% confident that she'd use, um, uh, you know, the ref- method of just randomly selecting an innocent prisoner. But suppose just t- to fix ideas, uh, I was... Conditional on Miss Justice being in charge, uh, I was 20% confident that she used the following method. Uh, get two files, one with cell block A, one with cell block B, toss a coin uh, to pick a file, and then go down the file until she hits a, a random person. Okay? Uh, conditional on that method, uh, it's inevitable. Uh, the condition on that method, there's a 50% chance that this person would be released. So, given that psychological profile, where I've got no special reason to think she use the, the two-file folder method, you know, get, only gave it 20%, if you think about it, then the combined information gives a big boost. Just do the Bayesian calculation. Then the combined information gives uh, an extra boost uh, to uh, the hypothesis that uh, misjustice is in charge. Just do that. If, if you don't think that, give it in my setup, then you just need to redo the calculation until you get that. The information that an innocent person is going to be released takes you from 50-50 to two-thirds, but the additional information given that psychological profile uh, is, uh, gives... Uh, a significant bump to the hypothesis that Miss Justice is in charge when you learn this person is going to be released. So just a caveat of course what I'm not do- I, I'm, I'm never using the method of indifference as it were in any of this. If I start thinking oh here's how I'm going to assign my prize to Miss Justice I'm going to just think of all possible methods and somehow do something a bit like uh assigning equal prior to each i mean given the infinitary nature of it i can't really do that but it's a bad idea anyway i mean another method is taking some two file folders each with an archipelago of prisoners you know where it's one seventeen nine 183 from there and the rest from there in one file. you know Uh, of course that's a method too but that's i give you know less i take that as a method a lot less seriously then I take the two-file folder method. So what you, what you need in this case, and this is what would go on in the hu- when we've got two human judges, the natural, the natural expectations that we have will be such that uh, learning, having learned that an innocent person's released, the additional information that Uh, it was the person was released from B actually gives a quite significant evidential bump on very natural uh, background background hypotheses uh, and uh, you know uh, epistemic probability distributions to the claim that uh, Miss Justice was in charge if the fine-tuning situation is like this the fine tuners win If you don't like fine-tuning, your job is to find... Not to hold this up as your favorite analogy. Your job, if you don't like fine-tuning, is to find some deep disanalogy between this situation and the the cosmological, uh, epistemological situation that we find ourselves in. So where am I... And there are all sorts of ways that you might try to find disanalogies. But uh, let's look at a few from the literature, popular and non-popular. I mean, let me just make something explicit, what you really need to run. You know, what I'm doing here is having a psychological profile where it wouldn't be fantastically surprising for the, uh, for the for the for Miss Innocent to be picking this person, I mean, a lot less surprising than one in a hundred. What what that two file folder hypothesis is doing is making it a lot less likely than uh, one in you know one in a hundred that Miss Justice would be picking. Yeah. Or and it, it makes it not fantastically unsurprising given the inf- information that, uh, that the, just the information that the prisoner is coming from B, that uh, Miss Justice is in charge. It's not fantastically unsurprising. It's not that bad news given the profile and just r- do, do the calculations. What we need analogously is conditional on that standard model cosmological constant information. It not to be fantastically unsurprising that uh, not yet, we just pretend we don't know about life yet. <laughs> we haven't noticed ourselves. We just know, given that cosmological constant stuff, what we need is it's still not fan- staggeringly unsurprising that uh, God's behind this. If the conditional probabilities aren't, uh, don't make it staggeringly unsurprising, then it looks on the face of it that uh, the cosmological, arg- the, the fine tuning argument is in a pretty good shape pretty good shape prima facie but that's that's the analogy conditional on the information just that the the guy's coming from B uh, you don't go super low given my profile on the hypothesis that Miss Justice is in charge the key analogy is conditional on the information of stringent laws or whatever Some that's a bit of a placeholder you don't go fantastically uh, staggeringly low on theism That's the key thing. That's the main moving part. Forget all this indifference. throw all that away. That's what matters. Okay, some responses. So as as I've said, what's important for the hater of fine tuning is to find a disanalogy between this setup and uh, the epistemic setup of primary interest. A few responses that I think are no good at all in the literature. Uh, one is uh, well, you're assuming that all um, all life is carbon-based. That's a popular thing in the in the literature, and basically that's tantamount to saying, oh, it's not just uh, you know a tiny sliver life because it's only a tiny sliver on the assumption that all life is carbon-based. I mean, at least if you did that. Co- and really, I don't know much about this, uh, you know, energy de- energy density in the vacuum thing, which is what the cosmological constant is. I'm just, you know, parroting really. But um, uh, you know, given the facts as I laid them out, I mean, it's not just that uh, you wouldn't get carbon-based life where the was the constant huge hugely positive or hugely negative. I mean, you wouldn't really get much beyond hydrogen and helium atoms as I understand it. So it's not really all about carbon-based life. So it's just no good. You can't, you can't break the argument just by playing the non-carbon-based life card. I don't think you can break the argument by some inchoate uh, gesture to the effect that uh, anthropic reasoning is bad. The idea that anthropic reasoning is bad is built on a certain observation that sometimes when you learn something, the negation of it is something that I could never have learned. I learn I exist, but I couldn't have learned that I didn't. I learn I survived a firing squad. I couldn't learn that I didn't. And then the thought is somehow when there's a failure of partition in the evidence in that way, it's dicey to use um, to use. To use to use that in your reasoning. I mean, I think those accusations are bad twice over. They're bad first because it is fine to use them in your reasoning. If the uh, you know you don't know whether there were faulty guns or good guns, and you discover you survived the firing squad, that's great evidence that uh, they were using faulty guns. Um, not decisive, but great. Uh, and it's bad secondly. Because what we're interested in is not the impact of the discovery that there's life, but the impact of the discovery that uh, there's fine tuning for life. And that, that, as it were, there was, there's no epistemic incoherence. In, while there's epistemic incoherence in the thought that I could have discovered that I didn't exist, there's no epistemic incoherence in the thought that I could have discovered uh, that, the, uh, that there wasn't that kind of fine tuning for life, okay? So, um, that argument is no good. Now, I move, want to move to some more interesting arguments. That are, you know, I, that, 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 that are more delicate. Um, the next argument is, in effect, the sort of thing that the skeptical theist will say. The skeptical theist tends to say that when when it comes to God, uh, your conditional priors are maximally vague. In effect, I mean, the best version of what they're doing says that. Conditional on God, you know, how much likely is it that he'll like, you know, uh, stringent laws? Vague, you know. With, 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 with misjustice and Mr. Random, you can kind of do it. have reasonable expectations. When it comes to God, you just can't have any expectations. Your priors go maximally vague, as it were, and if they go maximally vague, then it's harder to run the argument because in effect it will be undefined or maximally vague between zero and one, the conditional probability of uh, the being of, of, say, God liking fine-tuning and so the being a God conditional on fine-tuned laws or something like that. So that's the sort of thing that the sceptical theist, an extension of sceptical theism, m- might say. I-, I should say that I-, I think a lot of this stuff is a bit overblown. Um, I mean, t- t- take, take an example in the literature that's been used, sort of, uh, I, l- I learned this from Justin, in, uh, in, sort of in support of sceptical theism. The thought experiment is, goes like this. You know you're playing God at chess. He does makes a move that's impar- apparently idiotic. What you shouldn't think is, wow, God's, God sucks at chess. You should, be, <laughs> you should be thinking, wow, God's got reasons for that that I can't fathom. And that's true. That's true if you know you're playing God at chess. But that's not the right, analogy. That's not the right thing to be thinking about. The right thing to be thinking about is this. You're... You're a middling chess player. You're going to play someone at chess. You're 50-50, let's say, whether it's a novice or god. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the move comes in and you, you the move comes in and it's it looks unbelievably stupid, you know. I mean, the 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 analog of the skeptical theist will say, "Oh, you should be, you know, just complete that's no evidence that you're playing a novice." But that seems really weird to me, to think that we, uh, it's unreasonable to take that as evidence that we're playing a novice. So, um, you know, I, I tend, I mean, I'd like to think about this more, but I think a lot of these analogies and thought experiments that are advanced in favor of uh, the idea that we just can't be in the business of assigning conditional probabilities to be, uh, to need far more thought than they're sometimes given. Uh, I can't really uh, say too much more about sceptical theism right now. I want to say a little bit next about um, uh, what Hans was saying yesterday, which I did find very interesting, but I think it's, uh, I thought, well, I'd say a little bit about it and that maybe echoes a few of the other remarks, though I'd certainly like to think about this. The general thought, let's, let me, is, is this, is, if you suppose that God's seeing to it or has a strong preference for life, let's say, put it in the strong, seeing to it that there's life, then conditional on that hypothesis, you should think that the ultimate probabilities The ultimate objective chances are heavily life favoring. Conditional on God seeing to it, you know, the being this thing that sees to it that there's life, it seems that conditional on that, you should be thinking that the ultimate probabilities are uh, heavily life favoring. But you can't really then use physics in support of the God hypothesis if you're thinking of it that way, because physics seems to give us a space of ultimate probabilities. That aren't uh, don't that, that 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 don't yield heavily life favoring objective chances. I mean, that's the sort of thing. I mean, I'm cutting corners. I think there's plenty to be thought about here, but. Um, One thing to think about is the fact that often probabilities can be excellent guides to credence in a a certain kind of probability space can be an excellent guide to credence in a provisional way even if it's not a space of ultimate probabilities. Let's take a simple case, I mean, I'm trying to calculate the chances of uh, three coins, three heads in a row, so a condition on me tossing a hundred heads I mean, I'll do some combinatorics, and I'll come up with a pretty good number, and I'll use that combinatorics as a reasonable guide to credence about uh, three heads in a row. But I don't particularly want to be committed to that combinatorics giving the ultimate probabilities of me tossing, uh, you know, three heads in a row, because for all I know about a certain point in a deterministic phase space that you know has a deterministic evolution that guarantees in terms of the certain ultimate probabilities that I won't toss three heads in a row so I think at least one issue that's raised by what Hans was talking about is uh, you know how bad would it be to take the attitude to these measures say on initial conditions that's akin to the attitude that I just took to the combinatorics in coin tosses, where I think of them as excellent provisional guides to credence, but just as learning I was in a point in phase space uh, and and learning the deterministic evolution path and whatever would be inadmissible evidence relative to the provisional provisional, uh, probability space given by the combinatorics. So, as it were, learning that there's a God would be inadmissible evidence uh, relative to the uh, provisional, uh, the, the, provisional, the provisionally good guide to uh, credence that's given by uh, the measure that he was talking about. And I, I, don't, I, I just think that that's at least, I just wanted to mention that as something to think about. Um, of course, he might tell me, no, you're misunderstanding. Physics tells us that these are the ultimate probabilities, not just that they're... But, you know, there's... I'd like to learn more about the sensibilities of physics here because often it's hard to tell which bits of physics... which things physicists say are sophisticated bits of physics and which things that they say it's kind of like amateur metaphysics hour. When, how, when, you've done your, when you've done your physics, you just, you know, have a little bit of entitlement to sort of, you know, say a few extra things. So I, I'd like to do more to sort of... Get myself into the sensibilities of contemporary physics to, to understand uh, this more. I mean, there's plenty more to be said about that, but you know, I want to flag that as something uh, to think about. Um, another thing that I think is interesting and maybe is a, a disanalogy with the uh, Mr. Random is you might think, look, in the case that we're talking about, you shouldn't be thinking of it as random. I mean, random might be hard in the infinitary case. I mean, but, but, but you know, even if because it's a non-countable, you can, you could in principle give everything, you know, every particular point zero and I, I, I don't want to get into all the normalization things. The main point I want to get across is because of our preference for simplicity in our sort of, in, in our sensibilities, Uh, We're not going to be, it doesn't even feel that we ought to be even-handed in our expectations. For example, you know, if the cosmological constant was zero, you know, everything cancelled out perfectly. I don't want to think of that as just one hypothesis along others, you know, 0.037, you know, some like completely bizarre number, you know, as being on a par with, they all cancel out to zero. There's something quite, from from the sensibilities of physics, there's something quite natural and appealing about the idea that the energy density in a vacuum is zero. It all cancels out perfectly. So you should give that particular hypothesis a boost. So the whole picture of, uh, in terms of the epistemic probabilities, being like Mr. Random might not be a good idea for some of these hypotheses. But then again, it's not clear how that breaks in terms of the current argument. You might think, well, learning that the fundamental physical structure was disorderly in a certain way would actually be much better news for theism than learning that it was orderly in certain ways, because you might think, look, uh, we want the... Ultimate reality to be to be orderly in a certain way if if the cosmological constant all cancels out to zero great Then we've got orderliness, but if at the physical level it's just leaving us with danglers Then we can restore orderliness by positing uh, Positing some divine artificer. I mean that would give us orderliness in a way that we'd have to live with disorderliness in um uh, on the hypothesis of this being the fundamental physical reality. So uh, I want to concede that you know, the talk of Mr. Random is misleading in some ways because it gives you the picture that uh, uh, we, we should sort of try and be completely even-handed in, uh, with regard to, as, as far as we can, uh, on the hypothesis of... Uh, as John of Damascus put it, the cause being the spontaneous, but I don't think, in fact, that's, uh, very. it's very clear that that's the reasonable way to organize our epistemic space. Um, I'm just touching on a bunch of things as food for thought, as you see here. Let me talk about a couple of other uh, reactions among my friends. Uh, one reaction, have a few re- related reactions. One, I sort of get the vibe that maybe Jeremy Goodman and Tim Williamson go for this. They say, well, sorry, it's a very nice argument. The trouble is I know there isn't a God. And so, <laughs> 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 and uh, Frank Hansenis' reaction, if I give you the feel for that, you know, you know, the, the if you run the cosmological constants stuff, you'll find that the you know the universe is fine-tuned with respect to the hypothesis that there's a god with a tungsten fetish. You know, I mean, with big and small, you wouldn't get tungsten either. So take the hypothesis. You know, think, think about what he invites me to think about. What I think about the hypothesis that there's. Uh, God with a tungsten fetish, and I kind of think to myself, well, you know, conditional on the being a divine artificer or an intelligent artificer, it's still staggeringly low that uh, that there's uh, an artificer with a tungsten fetish, you know. It's some staggeringly low number. And so while the discovery of tungsten gives the thing a boost, it's so staggeringly low to begin with that it, it, the, where it, in, in the base factor is pretty good, but the absolute value is still staggeringly low when I'm done. And what Frank says is, well, take that number you gave to the god of tungsten, that's what I give to your god, you know, and then, and, and uh, I do the calculations just as you. So that's, that's the kind of sensibility. Um, you know, in, in Frank's case, you know, there are deep issues that John and others have touched on about how to think about intrinsic plausibility and so on. You know, uh, of course, I'd like to think that his sensibilities are, are, are a little askew. He's a subjective Bayesian, so he doesn't think that there's any answer to these fundamental issues. So there's lots of foundational questions there. On the God side, um, I mean, I just want to say a few things that maybe relate a bit to what uh, Keith was saying. First of all, I can assure you that Jeremy Goodman and Tim Williamson and others believe there's no God. I can assure you. I mean, they tell me their attitude to the hypothesis that there's no God is akin, and this is using an example from Keith, it's akin to their attitude to the hypothesis that there's, uh, there are flying spaghetti monsters in the world, you know. That's the first thing. I mean, they believe it. I can assure you they believe it. I mean, I invited Frank and Tim and a few others to consider which they found more plausible, the hypothesis that there's a divine artifice or the hypothesis that the moon is made mostly of cheese. And there was a consensus. Moon made mostly of cheese. (laughs) So if that's not, you know, I I don't know what you need to to really believe, but that sure sounds like they really believe to me. So, you know. They do really believe there's no God. And what should I think about the thought that they know there's no God? Actually, I'm conditional on the being no God. I wouldn't be that surprised if they knew there's no God. I mean, let me just give you a feel for how I think they know there's no spaghetti monsters. Uh, By the way, I'm not relying here on some sort of internalist, uh, foundationalist theory of justification where somehow your justification in believing there's no spaghetti monsters is a function of the sort of your level of repulsion to the hypothesis. You know, I, I, I don't really think like that. I mean, I think, you know, if someone, you know, some crazy person has repulsion to the um, to the hypothesis that their wife is before them and, you know, attraction to the hypothesis that their wife's been replaced by duplicates, which unfortunately some people have and then they believe it, you know. I don't want to be in the business of somehow contriving some epistemic consolation prize to give them. Oh, don't worry, you, you, you have internalist justification or internalist prima facie justification. I mean, I think they'd be considerably improved if they were, you know, rigged up so they just instinctively resisted those, 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 those impulses. So I'm not thinking like that at all. I mean, what do I think might be going on? In you know, How do I think they'd be knowing there's a god or there's no spaghetti monsters? I mean, I think all they're doing is they've got a sensibility where they... Uh, I, they hear hypo, and you know it's been inculcated this sensibility and through training and exposure to the world. They've got a sensibility where they hear hypotheses and they think that's ridiculous. You know they have an epistemic emotion, and uh, they that and that yields a certain belief. And uh, you know I like the way Christina thinks about this, where. You shouldn't be thinking of the epistemic emotion as, um, as, as evidence. You should be thinking of it as an important cog in a safe pathway, in the case where you know. So I think that's how Tim Williamson knows that there's no spaghetti monsters. Not because he's got all this evidence. He's just got a, a safe pathway through the cog of his epistemic emotions to that. It's not fundamentally based on evidence. We shouldn't think of it. Uh, like that, or it doesn 't have to be like that, and I think in a godless world, it might well be that Tim and Frank and Jeremy and others are knowing there 's no God um, um, just by the same mechanism they have a sensibility uh, which gives them a safe channel to belief, and I think if you did know, then you know fine tuning wouldn 't be a defeater don 't be thinking like that you know when you know so, when, when I know there's a number between one and three and, and I'm in, uh, you know, Hartree Field Country, that doesn't stop me knowing. When, you know, Saul Kripke knew the uh, principle of modal metaphysics that if X is Y, then necessarily X is Y, then when Quine and others, you know, threw up their hands, it didn't stop them, you know, and protested. It didn't stop him knowing, even though it was sort of had the status more like an axiom than something he had some special uh, argument for, arguably. So, you know, I'm up for the idea that, you know, assuming a godless world, these people do know. And if they know, then when they start to, you know, figure out what to think, they're entitled to leave off things that they know to be false. So, assuming a godless world, I think that isn't okay. It might well be, they might well have the right reaction. Of course, I'm not in their position, and we can still explore uh, what to do in my position, but I, I don't think we should uh, think that we can uh, discuss what the appropriate thing for anyone to react to, uh, what's the appropriate way for anyone to react to the fine-tuning argument in abstraction from hypotheses about whether we're in a godless world or, 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 or not. Um, let me move to um, what I think is, you know, a thing that at least di- dilutes the force of the fine-tuning argument some. I mean, it moves my credences around, as it were. It, moves, it, it does move me. Uh, fine-tuning stuff but you know there are certain considerations that water it down Um, let me by analogy and pick up on a you know when the priors aren't that high for God small risks can really make a dramatic difference to your posteriors. So let's let's just by analogy look at a a thing that um, Richard invited us to think about. I mean, suppose I I find myself with a strong inclination to believe in God. And suppose I give, you know, a much higher prior to God than most, um, you know, uh, existential hypothesis. Maybe I give it one in a hundred. I mean, one in a hundred is high. Let me tell you, compared to most uh, existential hypotheses, you know, the, the spaghetti monsters is really bad. But you know, the spaghetti isn't that good compared to, you know. So, <laughs> uh, so I, th- I think one in a hundred would be pretty high. And let's j- agree that conditional on the, I mean, I'm spotting a bit here. Conditional on the being a god, it's almost inevitable that. Uh, god would be causally responsible for my inclination to believe let's spot him that. and, and now i don't want to be too skeptical i just want to take, condition on them being no god it's one in fifty that i'd have this inclination because of wishful thinking because it's a cool hypothesis because whatever you know you fill it in just one in fifty i'm not being that you know snarky or cynical here it's just one in fifty that one in fifty uh, given that my initial that the, the that the initial prior was only one in a hundred will mean that when I have the inclination i you know i don 't get past a third you know already so uh you know little risks uh can have a dramatic impact when the when the prior is only if the if the prior was only one in a hundred now you know bringing that to bear on the present case i mean what are the little risks that we have to contend with? I mean, this pluriverse thing seems a bit rubbishy, but, you know, to me. But it's not so rubbishy, I want to give it a staggeringly low thing, so that that's one thing. There's a little risk that physics is just completely on the wrong track. It's really, you know, it's, it's way off contemporary physics. There's a little risk of that. These things add up. And don't think that just a few percent here or there won't make a difference. It starts to get very, very delicate. It, you don't get anywhere near a half once you just get a, a few little risks like that adding up. So uh, just doing things in a fair, even-handed sort of Bayesian way, those few little risks you know, will make a dramatic impact on, um, on, the, on the posteriors. Um, And there's, I think there's, in that connection, and this is again something I'd like to think about and understand more about and get, get tuned into the sensibilities of physicists a bit more about, um, there's a good and a bad version of the God of the gaps complaint that you find in the popular literature. The bad version is, oh, you theists, you just posit a god whenever you can't explain something. Well, false, you know. We couldn't explain holes in Swiss cheese for a long time, but (laughs) that uh, that didn't, you know, physicists... Theists weren't scurrying to, you know, posit god as the explanation of holes in Swiss cheese. So that's not fair, but I think the good version is this. It's this, that some kinds of things, given the sensibilities of physics, are taken as pretty good evidence that there's something a little askew about the physics. I mean, in the, in the cosmological constant setting, some of these results were by the th- sensibilities of physics, you know, um, you know, taken as an impulse to revisit the physics and, uh, you know, look at ex- various expanding universe things and various other things that would, would, would change things. So, I think there's a danger that you take a physics, take the very things that are triggers by the lights of the sensibilities of physicists to uh, think that the physics is a little bit messed up and instead take that physics as a fixed point and use it as... as, as as, as, a, as a basis for getting very confident about God in uh, itself. So there's something, you know, quite delicate here, but I think it's quite important to, 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 to be careful not to do very much of that. And in my own thinking, I'd like to really uh, delve into the physics a little bit more. Uh, I've been going on long enough, so uh, maybe I'll call it good there. Thanks.